I am a black man in America. And I will always be a black man in America. But I will never, I will never accept being second class. Hello, our Voices Matter podcast audience. It has been a rough couple of weeks. Um, We are going through an unprecedented time in our nation's history, not only, of course, with the coronavirus, but also with the protests that are ongoing and across the streets of America and around the world following the brutal death murder of George Floyd and so many others. Um, When I started this podcast a year and a half ago, we came up with a tagline, permission to speak, courage to to listen. Hashtag permission to speak, hashtag courage to listen. And I think that those phrases, those hashtags are more important now than ever. We have to give each other permission to speak, to speak their truth, and we have to be willing to listen. We have to have the courage to listen with an open mind. Otherwise, nothing is going to change. It feels like things have changed. We are, we are starting to make that shift in that we are able to have these kinds of conversations now when before we weren't. So in the course of all of this, an old friend, college friend reached out to me and said, I have a story to share if you think that it would be beneficial for your audience to hear it. And when I read it, I immediately contacted him. And the result is the conversation that we are now about to have. So I am so pleased to welcome my guest today, Ron Inge, who is in Missouri now. And we were classmates um, at Stanford University back in the day. We won't say how many years ago that was, but it was a long time ago. (laughs) And Ron, it is so good to see you. And um, I'm just, Mm. I just wish that, you know, we hadn't reconnected under these circumstances. What, What prompted you to reach out to me in the way that you did? I followed your podcast. And I was very moved by a story that you read from one of the healthcare workers in New York. And at the end of that podcast, you said, if you have a story to share, send it to me. And with all the things that are going on right now in our country, for some reason, it's affected me differently this time. And I felt that I needed to put my words down and express things that I'd never said before. And after doing that, I felt like I needed to share it with someone. Um, I've shared it with a few friends, but I also was encouraged to share it more broadly. And so then I thought of you. I thought that that might be an opportunity if you felt that the story was worthwhile for me to share. Well, there's, there's no doubt that it is worthwhile. And I think that America, specifically white America, is ready 
to listen with an open mind and to hear the stories that so many of us keep hidden beneath the surface that we live with every day that we can't allow to overtake what we are trying to accomplish. We have to kind of push it into the background to keep moving forward. And, um, and I think that's why you feel compelled to share your story is because it's time for that to stop. That's exactly why. Um, for so long, I have simply had a facade so that I could manage my way through this country virus and be successful and gain the things that I believed were the American dream, which are shortened by the fact that I am black, because that will always be the first moniker that anyone sees. And it's always my position to try and move forward from that by my example, by my success. Um, Those are the things that have driven me. But in doing that, a lot of the obstacles, I simply internalized and I kept them to myself. But for some reason, the recent events have just caused them all to spill back out to a point that I can't control it, that I can't control not saying something, not referencing all the things that have come before me as I've gone through my life. You know, and in the story that I tell and when I related it to you, I start off by saying that You know, as a black man in America, I am vulnerable. And I feel vulnerable every day of my life. And I've become accustomed to feeling vulnerable because it's been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. I relate back to when I was a child. A group of us were playing in the front yard. And a car of white men drove by and shot into the crowd. One of my friends was hit. My mother beat me because she was so frightened that it could have been me that was shot. And that was really my first real exposure. And then I go on as I grew up. I grew up predominantly in a white environment. I was born in Alabama, but I moved to California when I was very young. And even in that environment, It was very difficult to establish who I was. I was black, but I was in a white environment. When I was in high school, there was a rumor that went around the high school that I had led a number of boys in having sex with a white girl. I was a model student. I was president of my class, but yet the dean of boys who was my coach, who I respected, who I thought knew me, called me into his office to talk about the incident as if he believed it was true. I was really disappointed by that. I was crushed by that because I thought that I had established myself as being a worthy person. And all that did was bring back the stereotypes and the unconscious bias that people have. I left high school and I went to Stanford. We met at Stanford. 
When I arrived at Stanford, I was one of the first freshmen to be able to play on the varsity. And I found out later that the coaches were taking bets on how long it would take me to find my place at the black table for training table, for training meals. And there was one table, just enough for the eight black players on the team. And we sat in the back by the door and we didn't really mingle with our white teammates. That was difficult for me. Coming from an environment where I was raised to simply evaluate people based upon their character and not the color of their skin. As difficult as that was for my parents to teach me that lesson because of the lessons they had grown up with, I took those lessons to heart. And it was at Stanford that one of our friends actually said to me when we graduated that she saw white people differently because of me and that she no longer prejudged them without getting to know them. That's one of our friends that shared that. And that meant a lot to me because at that point, I thought that I was making progress on both sides of the equation. But that was short-lived. From Stanford, I went to UCLA Dental School. And I actually had to go in person to prove that I was black because the admissions committee, this was during the time of affirmative action, did not believe that I was underprivileged because I'd gone to Stanford, because I'd studied abroad, because Stanford had campuses abroad. And also that my last name didn't sound black. That just fed into the unconscious bias against black people. And when I went to the interview, I walked in, I sat down, and the counselor across the table said, the interview is over. And I thought that I had been rejected. And he said, no, I just needed to see you in person. Even though I knew you were black, I had to have that confirmation for the committee. Wow. And that was the environment then. That was how we had to carry ourselves. And during my time in dental school, I was confronted by a professor who berated me for doing so poorly in his class. And I knew that I'd done well in class, but he didn't know who I was. He thought that I was another black student. He couldn't tell the difference. And I couldn't correct him because I felt that he had the power to either pass or fail me. And that would destroy my future. So I kept silent and I continued. And I did well in dental school because I was meant to be a dentist. When I graduated, I was going to help the world. But then I ran into those same social limitations. When I went to buy my first practice, 
I went to six different banks to get a loan. And it wasn't until I made it to the seventh bank that I actually got a loan. One of the executives at one of the banks that turned me down at least was honest enough to tell me that their committee didn't believe that a black dentist could take over a white dentist practice. And even the loan that I received was only for the price of the practice. It gave no working capital. I had to work nights at another office just so I could build my practice. And I did. And I built a successful practice. And from there, I moved on to corporate America, where in many instances, I am the only dark face in the room. And I do have to, at times, hold my tongue when people speak ignorant thoughts. But I always represent myself as being an example of what we can be. I remember back in the 80s when Charles Barkley did a commercial and said, I am not a role model. Mm -hmm. I took that just as a reverse because I am a role model. Because I did not pursue just sports. I pursued my intelligence. I pursued my abilities to do something good in this world. And I wanted that to be an example. I think that I've done that. I've worked hard at doing that because I know that if I fail, someone else won't get a chance. And so I push myself and I make sure that I'm the best at whatever I'm doing. But it comes with a price. And I've been really thinking about this more recently. And I'm not sure if my own ideas about my position have been fulfilled. I now see myself in two different perspectives. One, yes, I do continue to see myself as a role model and a representation that you can do more with your mind than you can with your body. But at the same time, in this time of crisis amongst black people, I worry that I may also be a hindrance. Because of my success, it feeds the establishment perception that there is no racism because I can succeed. Because we were able to elect a black president. And I was proud that we elected a black president, but I was also worried. And I was worried that it would allow the rest of the country to turn a blind eye to the struggles of the thousands of other black men and women who don't have that opportunity. Yes, we can easily say you can be whatever you want to be if you work hard. 
and to some extent it's true, but for most, there are barriers and limitations. Growing up as a child, my grandmother always said, you've got to be twice as good to be just as good. And that's true. That's a perception that I will always have, and that will drive me. No matter how successful I am in life, I always know that there is some ignorant white person who believes that they will put me in my place by calling me a nigger. You know, and I grew up and I established my self-esteem during the 60s and 70s. And we used the word nigger to reduce the impact of that word when it's spoken by someone else. To me, it's really absurd to now use the phrase N-word rather than saying so. It does nothing to take away the negative sentiment of it. And actually, the term African-American offends me just as much. Because why do I have to identify myself by my continental ancestry? I'm a black American. I'm a black man in America. That is who I am. And that is who I will always be. There is no reference of where I came from. No one else. Only those people of color have to make reference to their continents of origin. Why is that? That's not right. And so at times I may use the phrase, but I never like the phrase. It's socially acceptable, but it's more for our white friends because they can't differentiate between the negative sentiment of saying you're black and just the true statement that you're black and feel fine with that. I am a black man in America. And I will always be a black man in America. But I will never, I will never accept being second class. And I will never allow that to happen. And that's why I felt I needed to say that. And I needed to say it to everyone. My white friends, as well as my black friends. Because I've been challenged that I haven't spoken up enough because of my position, because I was an athlete, because I'm an executive. Everyone has to speak in their own voice. And my voice has been my presence to be the only dark face in the room, to be the only black executive in the room, to go where I want to go, to live where I want to live. Those are the things that I use as my protest. And I will continue to use those as my protest. Ron, thank you. Just thank you for um, 
for being open and vulnerable and honest and sharing your heart and your pain. Um, this is this is what it's it's going to take for our country to finally reckon with the past and the systematic, the systemic um, perpetuation of racism and keeping black people from reaching their full potential and just being able to live. You know, so much of what you achieved and so much of what I have achieved is in spite of all of the obstacles that were put in our way. So, you know, when you say, yes, there is this opportunity that we have to work hard and make a better life. But we shouldn't have to work twice, three times, four times as hard. And you shouldn't have to hold your tongue to defend yourself because the person that you're talking to holds so much power over you that they can literally derail or take your life. Right. What do you think needs to happen next? Now that Mr. Floyd has been laid to rest, the protests are continuing. Congress is now looking at this issue. What do you think needs to happen? I think the protests have been very good in regards to rallying the nation. But what I don't hear enough of are the people in power. I would like to see the protests on Wall Street in New York rather than Times Square. Because in our country, wealth and money do equate to power. And yes, you have seen some CEOs make statements and contributions, and that's great. But I can probably count those on just my 10 fingers. So it's the infrastructure of our country that has to start speaking up and has to start listening, but truly listening, because nothing is going to happen overnight. And I've been thinking about this a lot, and this is very similar to the late 60s during the civil rights movement. And out of that movement, we got affirmative action, which had a lot of positives, but at the same time, it had a lot of negatives from the other side. I think that we're at that same juncture now. I think that there will be some reforms, there will be some changes, but I fear that the conversations won't be broad enough that there is a generation, our generation, 
that is essentially in power and in control. And if you look at the people that are protesting, they are the young people who have the energy, who have the desire to see something different. But that was us 30 years ago. And it's how much of that will fade as they try to fit into the framework of our country. One of the things that I've observed over time is that you set a goal for yourself and you look to people to aspire to. If those people that you aspire to be like, whether it's financial, whether it's ethical, whether it's positioning, whatever they do, you will do. Even if it's not what you believe, but you will believe that you need to do it because that's how you get to that goal. So it's really our generation that has to step out and say, we will look at things differently. Because if we set the example, those that come behind us will have a better vision of what they should do. Mm-hmm. That's what I hope happens. And I'm, I'm actually encouraged that that will happen. And the reason I am is because of my own white friends who have reached out to me to have conversation. Um, and I've, I have a lot of, uh, I'm hearing this from a lot of different places. Um, and I think that people of our generation, you say we're the ones in power. Yes. Um, but we are, but we are now starting to have this conversation, which I don't think we've ever had before. I know I never have had it before with my white friends in, in the last 30 years and all the horrific things that have happened, um, in regards to race. Never has it sparked this kind of open, honest, you know, I don't get it. Help me understand. What can I do? I need to educate myself. I get it now. That's never happened before. So I'm hopeful that in this moment, we'll be able to take these conversations and change the hearts of mine and hearts and minds of our generation so that we are more in line with that of our kids, because for our kids, it's, it's much less. So these, these divisions, the racial division, it's interesting that to me that you brought up wall street and because as, as you well know, there was a black wall street. Yes. And we just observed the 99th anniversary of its decimation and um, its destruction I'm actually going to be doing a podcast about that. Um, the economic aspect of Black America and some of the, the calls for change and things that need to happen going forward have to do with creating a more cohesive Black economy. So it sounds to me like you agree with that kind of an approach. Am I, am I right? Yes, I completely agree with that approach. I think that we have to build ourselves up and be dependent on ourselves and know that we can move forward and create that coalition. Because I've done a little bit of reading about the Black Wall Street as well. Um, Reggie Turner produced that. 
Uh, and that was an example of a community that recognized their own strength and built themselves to a level of sustainability. And that's what we have to work for as a community. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so many companies are stepping up to help their communities through this challenging time. And here in Texas, one of those companies is HEB. The grocery giant has shown time and again that it knows how to handle a crisis, which is why it was ready to jump into action when the scope of the COVID-19 pandemic became apparent. The company's efforts and expertise were highlighted in a recent Texas Monthly article, quoting here, San Antonio-based HEB has been a steady presence amid the crisis. The company began limiting the amounts of certain products customers were able to purchase in early March, extended its sick leave policy, and implemented social distancing measures quickly, limited its hours to keep up with the needs of its stockers added a coronavirus hotline for employees in need of assistance or information, and gave employees a temporary increase in mid-March. I've shopped at HEB from the moment they came to Houston almost 20 years ago. I'm proud to have them as a sponsor of this podcast. Thank you, HEB. Um, you are married to a white woman. Yes. I'm curious about the kinds of conversations that have been sparked between you and your wife during this time. Are you able to share any of that? Sure. Um, we've had conversations about this, but we've had those conversations throughout our marriage. Um, actually, when I first proposed, some of her family was not very happy with that. But that was out of ignorance. But as they got to know me, then those things changed. She is actually more acutely aware of how we may be treated in a restaurant. Or, for example, I have a passion for sports cars. We can go to a car lot and the salesperson will direct all their questions to my wife. Yeah. It infuriates her, but that's what happens. How do you handle that situation? I handle that situation by knowing what I want, letting them do what they do, and making my own decisions. I don't challenge them. My wife will say, why don't you ask Ron? Because he's the one buying the car. <laughs> but for me, I do my homework before I get there. So there's very little that they can tell me that I don't already know about what I want. And actually, it's allowed me to walk a sales floor without any interruptions. So I've accommodated that bias to my own benefit. So I allow their ignorance, them standing off to the side, to allow me free reign to do what I want to do, which is look at the cars. 
So in effect, you're outsmarting them. <laughs> I don't think about it that way. It's just, I'm, I'm not expecting their bias, that's all. Right, right. You're, you're taking a negative and turning it into a positive for, your, for yourself. That's the only way I can live. When you um, sent me your, your story and you just shared with us so beautifully um, many aspects of it, there were a couple of other incidents in there that you didn't talk about and I want to ask you about. Um, one is not being um, able to stand up as the best man in your white friend's wedding. Tell us about that. So my best friend from high school, we had been friends since sixth grade. And we actually got married in the same year. And I was asking him if he would be in my wedding party. And he declined because he said, I can't have you in my wedding party. And I knew the reason why. Um, and I... And I hurt for him. As a young man, I recognized the racial, the racial lines in Stockton, California. And I knew that I could not go back to Stockton to practice as a dentist because I would put my white friends in an impossible situation. They would have to choose between having me as a friend and some of their white friends and family who would not accept me. And I made the decision not to put my friends in that position. But unfortunately, when it came time to get married, that situation arose. And it put a rift in our friendship. It made our friendship a little bit uncomfortable we're still friends today, but not the same. Have you talked to this, this friend since all of this has happened in the last couple of weeks? No, not in the last couple of weeks. I have not. Mm -hmm. I have not reached out to him. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what those conversations are like. Um, then the other incident that, that, you, um, that you wrote about uh, I was visualizing it and it sounded so much like what happened to Ahmad Arbery that it could have happened to you. So when yeah. that happened, when, when you saw that video, I can only imagine what that triggered in you. So if you would share with, with our audience what that experience was and then how you have reacted to seeing what happened to Mr. Arbery. Well, the incident that you're referring to, um, I became a runner, the long distance runner. So early mornings, I go out around four o'clock in the morning and I run. And at this time I was running about 10 miles a day. And I was out on one of my morning runs and a pickup truck of white men drove past me. And the trucks, as they drove past, Someone shouted, I'm going to kill me a nigger tonight. And the truck stopped about 100 yards in front of me. And in that moment, I felt fear, 
but I also felt anger. And so I decided I continued to run towards those taillights. I was not going to be afraid. And what I express to you is that I live with fear, but I will not live in fear. And I guess because of my defiance, the truck drove off and nothing happened. But I was angry. I wanted them to face me because I was not going to back down. And so seeing these things that are occurring now, yeah, I know they could have happened to me just as easily. And I understand what goes through someone's mind when they're faced with those things. But it's like I said, I can't live in fear. I'll live with it because it's always there. But I'll never let it stop me from doing the things that I want to do. It's still so fresh and so raw, even all these years later. And um, I, I can't, well, I don't know, Ron. I don't know. I just, um, I want to know what, what your message is to white America. What, what do you think needs to be said that has not been said? I don't know that it's what needs to be said, because I think everything has been said. It's more, I need you to truly hear what's being said. Because we're saying the same things decade after decade. It's, true. it's the, same, the same message. It's just, how do you hear it? Do you, as I read in one article, do you look for what were all the bad things that person was doing that they deserve to be treated this way? Or do you actually look at the act and say, that's an inhumane act? I don't care who the person is. That's an inhumane act. That's what I want to happen. I want people to hear. Because they'll never be able to experience it. They'll never know what we as black people feel every day when we walk outside. Every day when we are the only dark face in a crowd. Every day when I drive my car past a, a highway patrolman, whether or not I'm going to be stopped because I don't look like I deserve to be driving that car. That's something that they will never truly feel, but at least if they can hear how much that impacts each one of us and try to change in what they do and how they act and how they correct their other friends when we're not around and those conversations come up. Right. Speak up. The silence makes you complicit. Yep. It does. Silence makes you complicit. 
it all comes down to humanity, having a respect for each other as human beings. And that's the bottom line. Um, it's why I'm having these conversations. It's, I, you know, we need to have policy. Obviously, there need there, you know, there there needs to be a change in many of the policies, many of the the institutions that uh, we rely on for the structure of our government. That needs to change. But while that process is playing out, what we can do as human beings is relearn how to relate to one another and how to respect each other's common humanity. And that's where it starts. That's what I believe. I believe too. Ron, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you again um, after all these years. And I'm sorry that it, it took something like this to, to sort of reconnect us, but I'm, I'm glad we're back in touch. Let's not lose touch again. Um, is there anything you'd like to add that I haven't given you a chance to say? No, I'd just like to say thank you for giving me an opportunity. You know, I'm 65 years old, and this is the first time that I felt that I needed to say something. And so thank you for giving me that opportunity. You are very welcome, my friend, and I'm sure that your story will resonate and hopefully open some hearts and minds of those who are listening. Thank you so much, Ron. And thank you to our audience for giving him permission to speak and for having the courage to listen to his story with an open mind. We'll see you next time.